Greetings in Jesus' name to all of us who have a separate calling. Appreciate that, Eldon. It seems like the, the song service and the, and the Sunday school lesson lines is in line with what the main message is expected to be. So, um, I welcome everyone here, visitors. Thank you for joining us this morning, and and uh, trust that we can we can yes, as we uh, look at our calling, as we look at our calling, that we can clearly see. I mean, to just think of the the vast, vast, vast difference of outlook. If there's a future or if there's no future. And then I know why people say, well, you need religion to keep society in line because they gotta have some kind of a fear for the future to keep them in line. That's a common expression. And the atheists are saying, no, no, we do not need, we don't need religion. Religion actually causes people to do very bad things. And it does. But there's, there's been more, more corpses stacked on top of each other by atheistic governments than by religious ones. So you can start there. But anyhow, we're not going to go there this morning. <laughs> so, why don't we, if you can, just stand again and we'll have a word of prayer before we go into the message. Call on the Lord, Lord, we are grateful to you to have shown us, given us light, shown us a way, Lord. You've not left us in this darkness alone. Lord, if you think of this, this uh, world of suffering and pain, and it seems like there's no sense here, and yet, Lord, you have given us your revelation. You've given us what we need. And Lord, we, we do pray for those who read Sam Harris's book and are persuaded by it, Lord, that there would be, uh, you will put, there be some doubt put in their hearts that maybe there is something beyond this life. So we, I pray, Lord, first that you would, uh, enable them to open up their hearts and then, Lord, put people in their lives to show them the way, including some of us. So, Lord, we thank you, thank you, and just pray you be with us the rest of this morning here. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Also going to speak about a, uh, a world that is not going so well. You can turn to Jeremiah chapter 16. We'll read four verses in the beginning of that chapter. And you tell me, you think with me, whether this lines up with what Eldon was talking about. The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, this is the word that came to Jeremiah, 
Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and daughters, and concerning the daughters that are born in this place, and concerning their mothers that bear them, and concerning the fathers that begat them in this land. They shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried. But they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of the heaven and of the beast of the earth. The title of this message is The Future for Our Children. That'll be a little more explanation than this. But recently I was asked something like this. I almost wonder if it's right to bring children into the world, into this world. You feel so bad for the children. I feel bad for the young families and those who soon hope to have children. Times seem rather dark. Do you have a word of encouragement for them? And for the grandparents of these children. So that was a question that came my way recently. And I would like to ask you, how would you answer that? If that question came to you, what would you say? Are we bringing children into this world only to have them face circumstances that makes their life completely intolerable? Is that what we're doing? Like we read in Jeremiah, what is more difficult? I mean, you talk about a bunny that's twitching and suffering after being driven over. What's more difficult than seeing children suffer and you can't do anything about it? And to see them suffer and not being able to bring any relief like would have been the case here in Jeremiah's day. Well, what does the New Testament say? I'm going to read a few verses in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, verse starting at verse 25, just a few verses here. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. Paul speaking here to the church. Yet I give my judgment as one that hath attained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. Faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man to be so. They're talking about virgins, not marrying. But if, but, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I would rather spare you. So, Paul said, I would like to spare you. Since the times are very difficult, I'd like to spare you. So, it may not, it might be better not to get married and have a family. You may get married, but if you do at this time, you're going to have troubles and it would be better off maybe not to get married. That's what Paul's saying at this time. And the question could come, are the times We are those times. That would be a question. The future for our children. Well, I'd like to take you back almost 30 years. I was a young married man about 28 years ago. 
And I was with a customer. He he drove with me on the truck. I was spreading the limestone, and he went with me on the truck to tell me where the fields were at. This is upstate or uh, any center state. And he was a young married man with no children. I think I think we had one children, one child, maybe two. I'm not sure, but around that time. And we began to talk, and he said he's not sure whether it's right to bring children into the world because times are really bad. 1992, 1993, whenever it was. And and we talked about a lot of things. He actually was the Jehovah's Witness. That's when I first found out that Jehovah's Witnesses are apolitical, which means they do not get involved in politics. They do not get involved in the government. They do not go to war. And various things we found out. But then, but we talked about this very thing. Now, what was so bad back then? Well, it was the Reagan era was over and the Bush era was over. And I think Clinton had become elected. That was what was wrong politically. Um, the family was continuing to disintegrate. Uh, the media, movies and TV was continuing to become more violent and vile during that time. And more and more manufacturing jobs were going overseas, and people were having difficulty in the new realm here. So the, economically, it's just a very uncertain time. It, looking at the trajectory from this man, he thought, I don't think my, I think children being going in this world, it's not gonna, it's gonna be so bad for them, I don't think we should bring any children into the world. That's what he thought. So, I am quite certain that there are some here that are glad I didn't take that counsel. <laughs> that we actually did have children, and we had a family. And they did grow up in this bleak world, and they were not all swallowed up, thankfully, by this increasingly evil world. But what about now? Are the times worse now? Well, it's much worse. First, I would like to bring a little bit of clarity here. Should we bring children into the world is actually not the question God gives to us. Did you notice that? Where is the question? Should you get married? It's the question that God gives to us. Because if you are married, now it's too late. The question, God does not give that option of not having children Nowhere that that given, I mean, obviously he can close the womb and all that, but we're talking about voluntarily. Um, even though now we have technology that reliably you can prevent children, uh, you can have children as an option, but that's not an option for God's people. So if you fear for the children, you shouldn't get married. If you're married, then you should no longer ask that question. So that's at the beginning, that's, that's what it is. That aside, do I think that the babies born today and the little ones among us 
are going to have it easy in their world as they grow up and when they grow up. Do I think they'll have it easy? And the answer is no. Do I believe they will face persecution? And if by persecution we mean financial deprivation or emotional assault or social rejection or character assassination, do I think they'll face that? And I think, yes, I think they will. I believe our children will see that day, and if they are faithful to the Lord, many will probably experience some of that. So this morning, I'm going to put on some of my prophetic eyes on. I'm going to try to envision the world in which the little babies among us will live in. And later on, give some advice what we should maybe do about that. How difficult will it be when they grow up? I don't know, but I think it's good for us to look squarely in the face of what we see coming down the road now. We heard a reference of it already this morning. Uh, yes, the song leading us in the world that we're living, the uncertainty. I think we should look squarely, squarely at that. We need to look at it and we need to prepare our children and our grandchildren to face it in their lives. Well, what do we see coming? What I see coming is probably not the end of the world. Maybe you see the end of the world coming. I don't necessarily see the end of the world, but I see, I see coming the end of the world that we are accustomed to. That's what I see coming. Probably will be the end of the world that we have been accustomed to. You see, the breakup of the family, the loss of traditional values, and the breakup of community, there's been, a, a, there's been an erosion, a slow erosion for decades, actually for generations now. There's been that erosion. That's what we're accustomed to. We're accustomed to an erosion. But at some point, I believe there will be a tipping point where a critical mass is reached and things change rapidly. That's what I think. My prophetic eyes. There's a large segments of culture, and increasingly the government is turning against the foundational values that we have believed in and lived in. Imperfect and incomplete, as it was, the Judeo-Christian foundation that our country, our culture, operated in, is going to probably disappear as a whole. It's that environment, that, that incomplete and imperfect environment that Judeo-Christian was the environment that we called normal. But no more. We live in a culture in which our beliefs increasingly make little sense. We speak a language in which many of our culture will no longer be able to hear. 
and will find actually very offensive. And if the trajectory continues, it's without doubt that some type of persecution is coming. And it will likely be begin before our babies become adults. Now, why do I say that? Do I have some evidence to back that up? <laughs> I just like to bring some things that I have, and I know you. I know as I'm thinking, as your thoughts are coming to your mind, you're probably thinking of some things. But I'm going to bring a few recent events that caused me to say what I am saying. As the COVID-19 pandemic was really beginning to hit New York City this past spring, and the hospitals, they were, you know, they were running out of bed. They didn't know how big this thing was going to get. They were, they were really concerned that they're going to run out of hospital space. So there was a hospital in New York City that invited an organization to come in and help them called Samaritan's Purse. Now, Samaritan's Purse is an evangelical Christian ministry that sets up mobile hospitals all over the world whenever there's a crisis. So, here's what the, uh, the, the president of this Samaritan Purse said. People are dying from the coronavirus, hospitals are out of bed, and the medical staff are overwhelmed. That was Franklin Graham, Graham president of Samaritan's Purse. We are deploying our emergency field hospital to New York to help carry this burden. This is what Samaritan's Purse does. We respond in the middle of crisis to help people in Jesus' name. And that seems straightforward. There's a crisis here, and we want to help. We want to help. We want to save lives. We do that all over the world. So we're coming to New York City. Within a month, the speaker of the New York City Council called the group to leave that city. And this is what he said publicly. <clears throat> he said, this group, which is led by the notoriously bigoted, hate-spewing Franklin Graham, came at a time when our city couldn't in good conscience turn away any offer of help. That time has passed. Their continued presence here is an affront to our values of inclusion, and it is painful for all New Yorkers who care deeply about the LGBTQ community. Keeps on talking. Mount Sinai, the hospital that asked them to come, must sever this relationship with Samaritan's Purse. Its leader calls the LGBTQ community detestable and immoral. He says being gay is an affront to God and refers to gay Christians, gay Christians as the enemy. Samaritan's Purse requires its volunteers to agree to a written affirmation that marriage is exclusively the union of one genetic male and one genetic female. Hate has no place in our beautiful city. That man has indicted all of us in this room. We are all notoriously bigoted. We are a hate-spewing group. And we are an affront to their values of inclusion. We perpetuate hate in this beautiful country. 
Now, well, that's New York City, and you might expect that there, right? It's there, but it's not only there. Some of you may know that someone that I know personally that put a poster on the front of his grocery store in central PA, and it was uh, it was a notice about mask wearing and the pandemic. One of the 24 points reflected negatively about the LGBTQ community lifestyle. He said the LGBT lifestyle is it is sin in God's sight and it spreads deadly diseases and sicknesses. So one point out of 24, well, that point just went all over the place. It generated a public protest that was held last Sunday against him and in support of those sinners in God's sight. They said, and this goes with your message, Eldon, something. Uh, this is what the protesters said. The leaders of the protesters said this. After the hate displayed on the door, let's show them how the LGBTQ community is about love. So we can love each other. And it brought a response from the PA governor and the health secretary. Now, the health secretary, Pennsylvania health secretary, basically said that you are a transphobic if you believe what's on that door. He said, did I say something wrong? Yeah, I think I did. Okay. We have not made progress until we have all made progress. Said we must work not just for tolerance, but for acceptance. I have no room in my heart for hatred, but I have no room in my heart for hatred, and I have no time for intolerance. In the speech that was given by him that I read, I gained this insight. He said it would not be enough just to give acceptance, but one must be welcoming. We are we we are we're going to go to come welcoming. Anything less than that would be considered harassment and discrimination. You have no voice. You have no argument. You have no standing in the matter. If you do not approve of us, you are hateful. So, we are transphobic. If you disagree with that, it's, it's a complete, it's a complete if you, if you know anything about the English language, transphobic is used completely incorrectly. Because a phobic is when you are actually, I mean, you are in an irrational fear of something. That's what a phobic is. Uh, but just to say I do not approve of that does not mean you're transphobic. But you cannot get around that because you will be labeled that. So, discriminatory, and the governor said you're abhorrent, and you're disrespectful, and you are dangerous. In fact, it is unforgivable. Those are all words that the governor has said. And then we could talk about the Black Lives Matter, which is a political movement. Well, it wasn't, but it is a political movement now. It definitely is. And I could, uh, I'm not going to go over what they all believe. It's too, too detailed. But I can give you information if you, if you want it. 
But they, if they get into power, they will completely change family life, school choice, occupational life, religious freedom, health care, and just about everything else that we consider normal is going to be turned around. And most of the big corporations are putting a lot of money into it because it's the, it's the in thing to do. Um, you have Airbnb, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Coca-Cola, and a whole list of other companies, big companies, national, multinational companies. And they're getting a lot of money. And that, this, and a whole lot more is why I am saying that what I see coming may not be the end of the world, but likely will be coming sometime the end of the world as we know it, as we are accustomed to. We are accustomed to a slow erosion in our society, but quite likely we'll see a critical mass which things will change rapidly. W.A. Criswell describes what the early Christians faced. He said, he said the Roman Empire was the most tolerant, the most liberal, the most wise, and the most accurate in its handling of the many provinces and religions of its empire, of any kingdom that ever existed. Men could worship, they could have temples, they could do as they pleased. It was a tolerant society. And yet, the Roman Empire and the Caesars persecuted Christians. Why? But they're so tolerant. Why? Well, the Romans invited the Christians to place their Jesus alongside their gods. They could place Jesus alongside uh, Jupiter and Juno and Neptune and Isis. But the Christians wouldn't do that. They would not acknowledge any other god, and they would not put Jesus alongside of them. They flatly refused. It is Christ alone. And when the Christians were invited to just bow down before the Roman image, their lives would be spared if they would merely take a pinch of incense and put it on the fire that burned in the presence of that image, the image of Julius Caesar. Uh, Roman Caesar. All you had to do, you could then do what you wanted to do, but you had to give that pinch of incense. And they would not do it. And they died for it by the droves. Actually, that's what I see coming on us today. We're not required to practice what they practice. We can be Christians if we so desire, but we must affirm them. We must applaud them. We must give them a pinch of incense on their altar and express our solidarity with them. And real Christians won't do that. Brothers and sisters, there is a collision coming. There is one coming. There have been some skirmishes already. There's big circles in which we operate, but those circles, I believe, are going to continue to get smaller. And at some point, those circles will close in. 
we probably will not be free to do business in many areas according to our conscience. Catering for weddings, uh, facilities, or hiring is already regulated in this area. We may lose our right to school our children unless we give them that pinch of incense. We may face fines or jail time for not going along with the program. We may face financial hardships. We may become poor. Now, this is the world probably our children will be living in. And now that you know what I believe, what I believe, is it a good thing to bring children into this world? And I say yes. Well, there are many, many reasons, and we'll spend some of the time explaining the reasons why. Well, there are... If you were here last Sunday, I didn't hear last Sunday's message yet about the Laodicean church. But I would dare guess that we have less of an issue with the Laodicean spirit if we are suffering for our faith. I would guess that. We would have less of an issue with lukewarmness, which God hates we probably would have less of an issue with worldliness in general. We might care less about that car or that pickup or that house or that clothing. We might experience freedom in areas we don't experience now. We might pray more. We might pray more earnestly. We might care for each other more than we do now and depend on each other. Tertullian, the early Christian, if the quotes are correct anyhow, brother, he's the one that said something like this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the variant translation, which is maybe what he actually said, as often as we are mown down by you, the more we grow in numbers. The blood of the Christians is the seed. So we will not stop welcoming babies into the world, not even this world. But we should prepare for what's coming. It's the time to prepare for disaster is not during the disaster. It's before preparation before disaster does does. Yeah. In other words, if you're prepared ahead of time, it can go much better than if you don't. So. A hurricane is on the way. We should get ready for it. And the question is, who should get ready for it? Well, not our babies. <laughs> not our little children. It's us older ones who need to prepare for the storm that is on the way and is forecast to hit us. Remember, it's only a forecast. It's not a prophecy. <laughs> Matthew 5 10 to 12, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you.
This verse, as I was studying for this message and I was going through, this verse makes a lot more sense than it did before. It says, persecuted for righteousness sake. That means if we stand firm in the truth as God has given to us and we stand firm in that truth, that's righteousness. And we stand in that truth and will not give and we're persecuted for that purpose. That's what we're talking about. You know, over the years as I reflected on persecution, it was often from a communist perspective or an atheist perspective that you weren't allowed to be a Christian. You weren't allowed to gather together as church. You weren't allowed to meet. Uh, if, 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 uh, if you meet secretly and the meeting was broken up, you were, you know, all kinds of persecution. You risk arrest if you met together. Bibles were banned. But I don't see that coming at all. Maybe it will, but in this tolerant society, you may be a Christian. You may have your Bible. You may meet together. But you may not be righteous. You may not be righteous. You must give that pinch. You may not discriminate between good and evil as God gives it. And you will be persecuted if you do not, if you do that. I believe the time is at hand for reflection on this truth. That is actually more normal than not for the church to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Historically, it's been more normal than not. <clears throat> and we must reflect, as we're talking about preparation, we must reflect that if we as God's people have a proper foundational understanding, do we have a foundation that is built on the necessity of the cost of following Christ and the cross that it brings in our lives? Or is the foundation that we have built on supposing, uh, built on the supposition that it's, it's, it's fairly easy and you just, you need to just fight the flesh and you, you know, that kind of thing and it's going to be easy. Which foundation do we have? And so we wonder, we can wonder what would happen if our world would come crashing down. How many of us would prove to be lovers of this world if the choice were forced on you? Either you deny, you either agree with us or you lose your job. Either you agree with us or we will find you. Either you agree with us or we're going to character assassinate you and all those things which I, I would believe where are we at if it all of a sudden would come to that will we rather than embracing our role as a people who suffer unjustly and embrace such suffering as a noble calling or will we rather consider it an evil and retaliate against them and try to get back at them or will we take it and recognize that that is our calling 
Grayson Gilbert says it this way. He said, we are in a world that in many ways is safer, safer in quotation, than any other generation before us. Yet more of us are plagued with anxieties and worries than our forebearers ever were. One of the reasons I believe this is so is simply because we have become soft in many ways. We have little concern of war on our shores. We have low child mortality rates. We have an abundance of food, some of which inevitably makes its way into the trash because we're just not in the mood for it. We are used to a certain prosperity that when that prosperity is threatened, even minimally, minimally, our immediate reaction is one of doubt and uncertainty. Realize how twisted that truly is. Our sense of safety and well-being are intimately wed with having an abundance of things and relative ease. And when the abundance of things and relative ease is disrupted, our sense of well-being and safety is gone because we are connected, more connected to that kind of lifestyle than we realize. So we draw comfort and security from that abundance. To put it bluntly, we suffer very little, and as a result, we are immature. We marvel at the faithfulness of historic Christians and the persecuted church. And yet, we do everything in our relative power to keep suffering at arm's length, away from us at all times. Now, don't misunderstand me. My aim is not to say one should seek hardship, but rather one should joyfully embrace it when it comes. When God calls us to it for the sake of righteousness, we should joyfully embrace it. And I want to go through a little bit of what suffering produces. Suffering is hard. Suffering is not bad. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And that hope does not disappoint us because God has, I don't have the quotation here, it's, it's uh, Romans 5. Maybe I should read it. We glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patient and patient experience, and that experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So, what this passage reveals to us, what one might call, some have called it, the golden chain of suffering. And the end result of this golden chain of suffering, the end result is a hope that is fixed on God. What is incredibly important to us is the recognition that without suffering, there is no resulting endurance. And with there is no resulting endurance, there is no proven character. 
And if there is no proven character, then there is no hope in God. Now, I'm more than willing to believe that people want hope, though. We all, hope is, we, we need hope. The problem, of course, is not that the in- individuals desire hope, but they don't desire the God-ordained means by which it is intended to come. In other words, people are all about receiving the hope of God, but few are willing to endure the long seasons of trials which are guaranteed to come to those that are in Christ Jesus. And to put it in the vernacular, it's like this. Everybody wants them big muscles, but nobody wants to lift them big weights. That's the vernacular. <clears throat> and then we neglect to remember that even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. If the route that our Savior took to be made perfect was through the school of suffering, we, who who our desires are not always in submission to the Lord, suffering also need to be part of our training in righteousness to be made complete. We need to see that suffering and walking the way of the cross as the way designed for us by God. And we may experience more and more of that in the years ahead. A day is approaching when the radical left will win political power. And then with unbridled fury, unbridled means to bridle, the, the reins are taken off. With unbridled fury, they will put legislation through that will make it very difficult for Christians, true Christians, to live in. And it's time, I think it's time for us to recognize that the handwriting is on the wall. You follow Christ and you will be persecuted. It may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be financial, but it's coming to the faithful church. And I believe it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. Politics will not save us. This is not a problem to be solved, but it is a reality to prepare to live in. We should probably prepare for a long-term occupation. You know, if the ancient Hebrews, after they were taken into captivity, if they would have been assimilated into the life of the Babylonians, they would have ceased to be the people of God. And that's how it's going to be for us too. If we are assimilated, if we give the pinch of incense, if we, if we give in to what's coming on, we will cease to be the people of God. So the forecast is for a hurricane to strike. The exact timing and the strength of the storm is not certain. But it probably will not miss us. And it could be worse than forecast. Back to the question. I feel bad for the young families and those who soon hope to have children. Times seem rather dark. 
Do you have a word of encouragement for them? I think I do. Let's think about children coming into the world today. Today, many children come in, in this country, many ch- babies are born in very volatile situations. The rate of children born in single parent households is high, probably passing 50%. And there's many homes that are just divorced and remarriage and partners and live-ins and who knows what all else. Think about the percentage of children. Uh-huh. Sorry. Think about the percentage of children that are born into homes whose parents have the commitment to stay together. Divorce is not even a remote option. There's no question. They love each other and they provide a secure place for that baby to develop in its most formative years. These homes are a minority, a very small minority. And then they are shielded from the corruption and violence and foolishness that is everywhere on media. Talk about the babies born in these homes. They're shielded from the things that will harm them in their early developmental years. Instead, they are read stories. They are told Bible stories. They are learn how to sing. They learn how to pray. They are taught to train. They're trained to uh, taught. Um, they're trained to obey authority, and they're trained to control their emotions. They are trained to wait on their desires. They are guided with who their playmates and their peers will be. They're educated privately and not by a government school. They are taught about God. They're taught that God made them. They're taught about sin and they're taught about what's wrong with the world. They begin to understand where they came from. They begin to understand who they are. They begin to understand what they're here for. And they begin to understand where they're going. They develop a comprehensive and a wholesome and a healthy worldview. Not perfectly. There are struggles. But they get it without even knowing it. It's the environment that the babies live in, grow up in. So the question is, is it good to bring children into homes like this? And I say, yes. Yes, the world needs children who grow up to love and serve God, even in times of suffering. Would I be as excited to bring children into the world of 90% of the homes in this country? Not at all. If you wish to hurt and weep for children, weep for those children who are born in homes that have no security, that are volatile, that are abusive, that have no, they're not taught about God, 
in fact, they're taught they just grow from monkeys. They go to secular schools. They're exposed to the violence and the drugs and the immorality and and that whole thing. And and now recently they're taught every type of sexual perversion as normal. Weep for those children. Hurt for them. But children, our children, born in these homes, they are oriented from the start. There's structure and order prevails in comparison to the norm of our society. There's intact homes. There's schools. There's churches. There's businesses. There's extended communities, extended families. There's support system. There's financial support, emotional and physical support. Our children grow up in that. This world needs more than ever. Godly families and godly children who will be different from the degenerating culture. And I think young families. So do I recommend marriage? I do. And when you're a young family, you can start with a vision of an impact of what what for impact your home can have and what impact your children can have in this world. And it's needed. Young families, go for it. Heaven is on your side. I remember a point that Eldon had in a message several years ago. I think he was talking about the government. He said something to this effect. He said, a government that is friendly to Christians does not necessarily ensure a healthy church. And a government that is hostile to Christians does not necessarily mean um, it's not automatically detrimental to the church. Something of that nature. That, In fact, many times the contrast has been true. Now, I know there's been, there have been governments and countries that have so stamped out that Christianity almost disappeared. I, I know that has happened. So it's not true in all, you can't put, you can't put it in the can. I like that. That's true. But just because we're facing difficult times and it's coming and we may face various forms of discrimination and persecution does not mean it's going to be bad for us and our children. It actually might be good. As for the difficult times ahead, We should be praying about it now, about the realities coming to our churches and our families. It's okay to prepare our children to live in a culture that will hate them. That's okay to teach them that. Prepare them. It's not time to fret. Regardless of the changing Political landscape, God still reigns. America is not eternal. It is a nation, and one day this nation will fall. Its buildings, its monuments, 
and its ideals will crumble into the dust. They'll perish. But So we should be warned about what's coming, but we should not be discouraged. Our God is mighty, and he preserves his own. And uh, I was actually like to finish by reading a passage in Romans 8. And you could read the portion already that Eldon spoke. I mean, you could start at probably around 15 or 14 or 15. You could read the whole way through to the end because it just talks about this. But I'm going to start at verse 31, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's my encouragement to us. The future for our children. And I can say, I hope my prophecy, not my prophecy, my forecast, I would hope it's wrong. And it may be something else. It may be completely anarchy and disorder. It could be some other hardships that are coming. But may God give us wisdom. May God bless us and let us be faithful to the Lord. May God bless you.